The following resource is from Cambrian Park Baptist Church. For more information, please visit cpbchurch.org. Heavenly Father, we are so gathered that, so thankful you've gathered us here this morning that we might open up your word and by your grace, through your spirit, hear it and understand it. I pray, Father, for this teaching which will be certainly countercultural and I think hard for most of our fleshly minds to hear that you would cause it to, to penetrate, that we might receive it in joy, and as a result, Father, live differently. Um, I praise you for the testimony of the Apostle Paul, for the radical work of the Holy Spirit in his life, and the display that we see here, even as he says goodbye to the elders at Ephesus, the great love that they had for one another, um, no doubt as a result of Paul's servanthood to them for three years. Um, we ask, Father, for a transformation of this church, that we would be a people that serve one another and serve in this community, that we would not be those who um, love money and love possessions, but truly love you and love people, both saved and unsaved. Um, I recognize, Father, that this is a work that only your Spirit can do, and so I I am leaning heavily upon the Holy Spirit to do that work right now in my heart and in the hearts and minds of my brothers and sisters. We desire above all else for you to be glorified in our lives, in how we use our money and in how we relate to people. And so uh, use this passage to give us clarity on a, a life that's truly well lived, a life that will be countercultural in this moment, but so glorious to you both now and forever. We ask that you would do this, Father, for your glory and the magnificence and the glorification of Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning. I'm so thankful you are here on this glorious Sunday morning. If you don't have your Bible open to Acts chapter 20, please do so. Um, some verses that um, I have no doubt once we work through them and we see actually what's taking place and why they're in the Scriptures, they're probably going to rub against you. That's okay. We want Scripture to rub against us, right? We want to come in and we want to have God's Word actually change us. I know I was supremely convicted this week over these verses, um, so I pray that that same conviction will come through this teaching and that we will rightly submit to the Holy Spirit and be changed this morning for the better for God. Amen? All right, so Paul's on, his, on a ship. He's on his way back to Jerusalem with his companions, and he's making his way. Uh, he actually stops, if you remember from last week and two weeks ago, he stops at Miletus, which is about 44 miles due south of Ephesus, and he, he calls the Ephesian elders. Remember, he had been there for three years. These are men that he served and he taught to, and he loved deeply. So he calls them for one last farewell address. And so unlike previous uh, teachings where we see Paul uh, speaking mostly to the unsaved or those in the synagogues. He's talking here to pastors, and he was, he was teaching them how to be humble servants. We saw that two weeks ago, and last week we saw the call for these elders to be faithful under-shepherds of the Lord. He said, I want you to feed the sheep, I want you to lead the sheep, I want you to protect the sheep of God. And so today from our passage, in these final hours that take place, what we're going to see is one last teaching. He has one more word for them, and then we're going to see tears. We're going to see lots and lots of tears. And I, I want us to ask why so much emotion? Why so much sorrow in the midst of his departure? And, and what, what I want us to see is two qualities that the Holy Spirit had cultivated in the heart of Paul. Two qualities that I think if you know Christ, you want to. You ought to want, I pray. Um, 
these qualities impacted the way Paul lived and the way that he loved. The way that he lived and the way that he loved. It impacted specifically how he used his money and how he treated people. Um, this today for us, how we use our money and how we love one another, is so counterculture. How the church calls us to and what we're called to by the scriptures is so counter the way we live in our cultural moment. In 2013, a paper by the Journal of Consumer Research, they put out a, they did a, a study for six years, 2,500 people listened to this. It's pretty impressive. Um, and they were trying to make this connection between money and loneliness. They said it's, it's really strange. We see the culture become more affluent and more relationally disconnected. We make more money. We have easier lives in terms of what we, what we own, but we're more lonely. And this is what they found. They said a two-way relationship between materialism, those are things that we have or we want to have, and loneliness. He's right, they write, materialism fosters social isolation. Isolation fosters materialism. People who are cut off from others attach themselves to possessions. This attachment in turn crowds out others. Now, many of us actually can understand that in and how lonely a lot of people in this culture are, and maybe you too. And the more lonely you become, the more you will buy things. Paul reveals something here that is the exact opposite. He affirms the results of this study, but he does it in the positive sense, in that he uses his money to bless others, and in him blessing others, he receives back what? Love and love and more love. In fact, what we'll see here is in Paul's departure, he was a man most blessed. He used his money differently than we do today, and he related to people differently than we do today. Now, when you talk about money and love, those are two issues that go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. Mankind has always struggled with money and with love. Usually, we love money too much, and we don't love people enough, right? Or we don't love God enough. And so, Paul's words are still directed to the Ephesian elders. He's talking about the qualifications of the pastoral office. But I want you to know that he's talking to every single Christian here. right? These teachings that will go to the elders apply to us today. And I do believe, I believe in the power of the Holy Spirit to take these words and place them upon your heart so that you might actually today and for the remainder of your days in the Western world live very, very differently. How glorious that would be, right? If we collectively as one body said, we're not going to be swallowed up by the materialistic culture in which we live. We're going to live as God has equipped us and called us to live. And I hope to show you today that there are many blessings from that. So two things I want to show you. Number one, our our eternal inheritance from verses 32 to 35 and our eternal love, verses 36 to 38. The theme of the sermon is simple. Kingdom citizens put people over possessions. That's simple, right? If you are a citizen of the kingdom of God, then you will put people over your possessions. All right, are you with me? Give me an amen if you're with me because you're awfully quiet right now. Okay, thank you. That's good. You're with You're here. Here we go. Number one, our eternal inheritance. After teaching and exhorting the elders in Ephesus to the pastoral office, Paul here, he has one more truth, he says. One more that I want to convey to you that I want you to understand. Look at verse 32. Paul says, and now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. Now, this is a ben- it sounds like a benediction from one of the epistles, right? In fact, the entire time that we've been looking at what Paul had to say to the Ephesian elders, it sounds like uh, uh, an epistle in terms of his writing and his teaching. And it says he commends them 
to the grace of God. Now we hear that, and that usually sounds like, it sounds like fluff words, things you'll say at the end of a statement or the end of a letter. But what he's saying is, I'm putting you into the hands of God and the power of God to sustain you, to keep you, to nourish you. In fact, that word commend is the same word that Jesus used so that you don't diminish it. It's the same word that our Lord used on the cross when he said in Luke chapter 23, Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit, I commend my spirit. So this is not a cliche. The Apostle Paul is saying, I've spent three years with you, I've trained you up, I'm now putting you into the hands of God, and by his power through the gospel, I want you to live as God has called and equipped you to live. He says in verse 32, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. In other words, he's saying, I want you to remember the power of the gospel. The power of the gospel to save you, to sanctify you, to forgive you of your sins. The power of the gospel to make you a son or daughter of the living God. And he says, look at verse 32. The power to build you up and to give you the inheritance amongst all those who are sanctified. And so he commends them into the hands of God under the power of the gospel to build them up. That, that word in the Greek literally means to build a house, right? And we know this from Ephesians chapter 4. That's a picture of the church, that we're all pieces, we're all members of the house of God, and each of us gifted and equipped by God to build this glorious house for the honor of Jesus. And then he says, this is fascinating here, he says, to, to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified, the end of verse 32. In other words, the same inheritance that all the saints who have gone before these elders, what we call saints victorious, you're saints militant, you're still in the fight. Saints victorious, have, they've, they've gone to be with the Lord. The same inheritance that they currently enjoy, Paul says God is able to promise to you, if you persevere to the end, he's able to promise they will belong to you as well. In other words, Paul is giving them great incentive to serve and to sacrifice and suffer for the name of Jesus because of the inheritance that awaits them. Now, I do not have the time nor the space to list to you all the glorious aspects of the inheritance, but I'm going to give you just a few, and in these few, I want you to revel in them. If, listen, if you know Christ as Lord and Savior, these are yours. They're, they've been given to you by Christ. In other words, you are what? You're, you're not just an heir You're not just an heir of the kingdom, you are co-heir with Jesus. That means Christ who now is seated at the right hand of God, right? He is Lord over the heavens and the earth. He reigns now supremely. You get to participate in reigning with him. Jesus owns everything, Jesus has everything, and you come into that reigning with him. I should be able to stop right there. You say, well, that's sufficient, pastor. If he has everything and I'm co-heir with him and I reign with him, that means I have everything too. You got it. You got it. The Bible says that our inheritance is incorruptible, undefiled, and unfading, which means it can never change. If you are united with Christ, you inherit what Christ has, and that never, ever goes away. No second fall, no diminishing returns, no entropy in the kingdom of God. This inheritance will be absent many of the things that are common to life, things that we hate. We hate death, we hate pain, we hate suffering, we hate tears, we hate sin, we hate judgment. In the inheritance, those things go away. Yeah, amen is right. I know I've talked about this before. The older I get, the more my body fails, the more this hope. I I look forward to my glorified body. I get to inherit a new body that works much better than this body does, right? That should cause you to rejoice. A perfect body, a perfect mind, a sinless spirit to worship God perfectly. It means, my beloved, that you get 
You truly get not your HGTV forever home, but your real forever home. Your real forever home that Christ right now is preparing a place for you. And in that place, you can imagine as extravagant, as glorious and beautiful, but in that place, God dwells and therefore you get to be with him and that's what makes it so good. Your forever home. The inheritance includes perfect holiness, perfect goodness in your heart and mind and all those in the kingdom, Ephesians 5, 27. It means rest. It means rest, my beloved. It means that peace and joy that comes from being perfectly united with Christ and having no sin that keeps us separate. It means an eternal family. People from every tribe, tongue, and nation gathered around the throne, worshiping God, loving God, and loving one another forever and ever. And you say, well, that sounds like a a 1960s utopian dream. Where do you think they got the idea? They stole it from God. This is the end for all those who are in Christ. Singing, dancing, praising the Lamb, eating at his table, the most amazing food you can possibly imagine. But best of all, the inheritance is Christ. You get Jesus. And if you know who Jesus is, if you have just a glimpse of who Jesus is, you say, well, then I get everything, and that's true. You get Christ, and therefore you get everything. You get the lover of your soul. I will listen. It only takes a little taste of this to radically change the way you live. It only takes a taste of the inheritance to change the way that you relate to people and the way that you spend your money. In fact, this is what's on Paul's mind as he now begins to teach about work and money. Some of the commentators talk about this last teaching was kind of, it was the most important, therefore Paul waited to the end. I don't think so. I think Paul was teaching about the internal inher- eternal inheritance, and now he said, I now need to talk to you about work and money. Look at verse 33. He again, Paul's talking about his ministry for three years in Ephesus. He said, during that time, I, I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, their clothes, Verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands, speaking of his own, ministered to my necessities and those who were with me. And so Paul was not a lover of money. He was not one who coveted that which he did not have. And he's able to testify to the Ephesian elders. He said, listen, for three years you saw me. You know how I lived. I worked with my own hands. I made tents in order to, to buy food and to pay my rent and to pay my PG&E. And I paid for myself and I paid for all those that I brought with me. In other words, he said, you didn't have to support my ministry here. Now I want you to listen very carefully, and this is just a side. Some people use this to argue that pastors ought not be paid, right? The only problem with that is Paul specifically teaches in 1 Corinthians 9 and 1 Timothy 5 that pastors are to be paid. I'm gonna give you a couple in case you get on the wrong bandwagon. Paul clearly teaches, listen, 1 Corinthians 9, 14, that the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. Okay, Not to be rich and not to be greedy and certainly not to be a lover of money, but paid for their work. He reemphasizes this again in 1 Timothy 5, verses 17 and 18. He said, let the elders who rule well be considered worthy of double honor. He's actually talking about a monetary figure there, especially those who labor in preaching and teaching, for the scripture says the laborer deserves his wages. So Paul's not saying, listen, elders of Ephesus and elders throughout human history, you don't need to be paid. You should work with your hands and have someone else um, you support yourself. So what point is he trying to make? If he's not talking about elders' pay, what is he making? Look at verse 35. He gives us the answer. Paul says, in all things, I, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, he, working with his hands, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. 
And so he talks specifically in 1 Timothy chapter 3, in Titus chapter 1. He says one of the qualifications for the elder is they cannot be a lover of money and they cannot be greedy. And so that's what Paul's talking about here. Now, certainly that's a qualification for any pastor entering the pastoral office, but we would argue, would we not, that's a qualification for every Christian not to be a lover of money. Hebrews chapter 13, 5, keep yourself, keep your life free from the love of money. And even Christ said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. And so, elders, and I would argue all Christians, we are called to here, we're called to work hard, right? We're not, Christians are not to be slothful people, we're to work hard, and we are to earn money, and then Paul gives us reasons why. Number one, so that we can help the weak, Especially in the household of God, we can look around and say, how can I use the money that I've worked hard to earn to bless those around me, to bless those in need in this community and maybe in the larger community here in San Jose? And there's a second reason here, which I think we gloss by, and I know the prosperity gospel gets us sideways a lot, but he also argues that we might be blessed, that in working hard and earning money, you can give, and if you give, you're more blessed than when you what? Than when you receive. And he actually quotes Christ here in verse 35. He said, Jesus said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, my beloved, this is not, this is not a hard teaching for just our time, right? When you talk about sinful man and money for all of human history, those two are hard to separate, right? But I would argue that in our particular cultural moment where we eat and we breathe and we sleep materialism, it is really hard for Christians to hear Jesus say something like this, right? We consume And we consume, and we believe that the more we have, the happier we will actually be. But what if Jesus was speaking the truth? What what if it really is more blessed for you to work hard to earn and to give, and in that giving you will be blessed? More than you work hard so that you can buy and receive and consume. Well, I, I would argue who better to teach this than Jesus himself? I mean, what other man gave more than Christ himself? His whole life, you could say, you want to give some characteristics? His whole life was one of giving, right? I mean, he he left the heavenlies to come down to this place, to sinful fallen man, to become a man. He gave his seat in heaven to descend and humiliate himself upon the cross. He came to teach, he came to heal, he came to proclaim the gospel. His entire ministry was outward focused, giving, giving, giving. He gave by his allowing to be arrested. Remember, all this was part of the divine plan, but he willingly was arrested, he was willingly persecuted, he was willingly tried and found guilty for crimes he did not commit, and he never opened his mouth. You don't think Jesus could have testified for himself? You don't think that that the word himself, Jesus Christ, could have argued himself out of his potential sentence to death? Of course he could have, but he gave of his life in that way. He ascended the cross and offered his body as a living sacrifice for our sins. So even in his death, even in dying, he gave up his life, so what? So that sinners like us, by grace through faith, might receive from him his gift of life. So from beginning to end, we see that it's Christ who can make this statement. It is better to give than to receive. Now, if Christ can say that, whose whole life was spent giving, 
and then, and then receiving in his flesh the wrath of God that we might be saved, then you might say, well, how, how is that possible? I mean, how is it truly better to, to give than to receive? Well, Jesus understood something that Paul understood that I would really like for us to get before we leave today. Out of, out of Jesus' great love for the Father and great love for you, sinful man, he gave everything that he might have you. In other words, he, he gave up possessions to have what? People. He gave up things like not going to the cross. That was a big thing for him. In the garden, he prayed, Lord, there's any other way. And there wasn't. So he, he gave up the comfort of not receiving in his flesh the full wrath of God to have people, to have you. Paul was a beneficiary of Jesus' sacrifice. Paul had been gifted and received the forgiveness of his sins through the sacrifice of Christ. He knew, Paul knew his debt had been paid, that he had been united with Christ. Paul knew that he was a co-heir with Jesus and that Paul was guaranteed, listen, if you're in Christ, Paul knew that he was guaranteed that that inheritance belonged to him and that in a few short years he would receive it. That's how Paul was able to live as Paul lived. Free from the love of money. Free from the material possessions of this world. He did not covet. He did not long for it. Instead, he worked hard and he used the money that he earned to care for the weak and the needy. My beloved, Paul's desire to work hard so that he could give instead of receive was a result of what he had already received from Christ. Right? I mean, he... He had received from the Lord the Lord. Right? He had Christ. He had Christ. Christ, the pearl of great price, the darling of heaven, the radiant son of God. Paul had him. Now that, again, that's sufficient to end this sermon. If you have Jesus, then you need nothing. Your heart is truly satisfied. Because right? you have Christ, and he said he's never going to let you go nor forsake you. What more could he want? Well, Christ says, I'm going to give you myself, and I'm going to give you the kingdom. Paul knew that in a few short years, very short years at this point in time in his ministry, he was going to inherit the kingdom of God. All that we had talked about that was promised belonged to Paul. Now, living in a culture like this that, that truly does eat, drink, and sleep materialism, it, it may be hard for us to hear Jesus, Paul quote Jesus saying, it's better to, to it's more blessed to, to give than to receive. We hear that. And I think that most Christians would say, yes, amen, yes, amen. But I don't think we really live like that. You know, it's hard when you're, when you're swimming in a culture that is just consumerism through and through. We hear these things, and I think part of us goes, yes, that's true, but I really want what I have. And what I don't have, I want more of. Right? We covet, and we covet, and we covet. And not only do we want, I would say, each of us, we want and we think it's normal, right? We live in a culture that continuously tells us, one, that you deserve to have it, and two, if you get it, you'll be happy. So that's the perpetual message, right? I mean, you've, you've been exposed to enough advertising. You deserve to have it, and if you get it, you'll be happy. Well, you listen to that long enough, and you actually begin to believe it. You think, oh, no, if I just can get that. Of course, then you get it, and you realize what? I'm not happy. So it's that next thing you've got to get, and that next thing until you die right? Um, this last Christmas season, I don't know if you saw John Legend, he put out a, a music video. And in the music video, the song is entitled, You Deserve It All. 
If you've ever seen it, it's where you can watch it. It's not inappropriate. It's just uh, grotesquely ostentatious. He dances around this beautiful mansion filled with, with people and presents and food and, and furniture. It's just this fantastic scene of opulence. And this is what he's singing. Listen to these words. He's saying, you deserve it all. I won't sing it for you. You deserve it all. You deserve it all. You know you've been good all year. Mm. You deserve it all. He said, I found a gift that's perfect, and you're more than worth it. It's everything you've been dreaming of. So treat yourself to something nice, the luxury, the life. You deserve it all. Now, you, you can't watch that video or listen to that song and think, I do deserve it. That's right. I have been good, relatively speaking, right? I do deserve it all. How contrary to the life of the Apostle Paul. How absolutely contrary to the gospel message of being satisfied in Christ and giving and giving and giving. The irony of, of John Legend's song compared to the gospel cannot be overstated here. So who's Paul? Paul was a humble tent maker. I mean, he lived a very meager, Spartan-esque life. And yet, what we see here is that his generosity produced a response of love. In fact, we, we could argue that Paul was able to live as the faithful servant, giving and giving and giving, because listen, Paul did have it all. Paul had it all. Not all as in we see, it's not the mansion, it's not the food, it's not all the material gifts. Paul had Christ and he had the promise of inheritance. He knew what he deserved and it wasn't the luxuries of this life. He knew what he deserved apart from Christ and that was eternal judgment before the throne. And yet because God had been gracious with Paul, Paul had Christ and he had the inheritance and therefore he had it all and could live each day in light of these truths. And they are truths, my beloved. They're not pipe dreams, they're truths. So he had no need to be greedy. Paul had no need to covet his neighbor's silver or gold or garments or things. He had no need because he belonged to Christ and he had been united with Christ. Saints, listen, if you can make this shift in your life, in your pursuit of Christ, if you can make this shift saying, I have Christ and I have the inheritance of the kingdom, you can't get any bigger than that, right? The kingdom includes the heavens and the earth. So if you want more than that, well, that is true greed. You have Christ, you have the kingdom. If you can make this shift in the midst of these waters, your life will be blessed. You'll bless others and you'll be blessed in, the re in return by storing up your treasures in heaven. Now, most of you say, well, I, I want to be blessed. I want to be blessed. I want to be, I want to be filled with joy. I want, to, I want to know the love of Christ each day. I want to walk in that faith. Well, that's what Paul actually prays. He's sitting in, in prison in Rome, and he's writing a letter to the Ephesians, and he prays this for them. Listen, this is from Ephesians 1.18. No doubt thinking about the instruction he had given to the elders that day. Paul prays this for them. He says, having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, right? So let your heart see clearly these truths so that you may know what is the hope to which he has called you. What is the hope to which you were called? What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? Paul prays that for the entire church in Ephesus, that they'll be so radically satisfied in Christ and truly satisfied in the inheritance that they have in Christ that they will be generous givers. That they will give, and they will give, and they will give. 
Paul understood this. Listen, he understood that a satisfied heart is a generous heart. A heart that's truly satisfied in Christ and inherits him is a generous heart. And you will open your hands and you will give of your money and your time and your energy and your resources until you have nothing left to see the king because you get it all back anyway. A hundredfold. That's what the Bible teaches. This is not just a made-up fairy tale. A satisfied heart doesn't covet. Right? A heart that has been promised the inheritance of the kingdom doesn't need to be greedy i mean think about it. so let's imagine for a minute that i'm a multi-billionaire all right let's imagine i'm a multi-multi-billionaire i mean i have so much money but i did not tell my children you're not getting any of my money until i die right so i want them to go out i want them to get an education i want them to work hard now, I want you to imagine that they, they take this and they're not angry at all. Instead, they work really, really hard and, and they make money and they use their money to, to serve and to minister, to care for the weak and the oppressed. I would argue that that is a very wise approach. Instead of being slothful, saying, well, wait till daddy dies so he gets his money, knowing that they're going to be billionaires when I do die. They would be wise to work hard and use their money for the glory of God by giving it away, knowing two things. Number one, I love them, and I would never let them lack in what they need. So if they gave, and they gave so much that they needed help, then of course their dad's going to help them because he loves them. Right? In other words, they can't outgive me. My beloved, you cannot outgive God. You cannot. But number two, they would know what their inheritance was. They, they, they knew that they, they, could, they could work hard and give their money away and give their things away because in the end, they're going to get what? I mean, what does it matter? They give away 10000 20000 100000 They're going to get billions. It's pennies for them. Infinitely more for you in Christ. That's why Jesus was able to say, and he meant it in Matthew 6, do not worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? How much money do we need in our 401k to retire at 65? Stop worrying about that. He said, for the pagans run after these things, and your heavenly Father knows you need them. But then he says what? Verse 33, Matthew 6, you have it memorized. Seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these other things will be given to you. Stop worrying. Live a generous service life. Stop worrying. My beloved, if you are a Christian and you're united with Christ, you have Christ. You have the promised inheritance of the heavens and the earth. That should not make you slothful. It should, should fill you with a zeal to work hard, to earn money, and to bless others, knowing it not only brings your Father honor and glory, but it will bless your soul too. It is a path of happiness. It is a path of joy. It is a path, as we're going to see in a minute in the second point, it's a path of people, right? You're not going to have to be part of that, that 2013 study, study and grab all your things and be lonely. Right? Loneliness is a horrible thing, and most of us know it in some way or another. All right, so point number one, you got it? You say, well, I don't know, what was it again? <laughs> the wisdom of living each day in the love of Christ with our eternal inheritance at the forefront of our minds. We have Christ, we have the inheritance of Christ, and therefore you can live a radically generous life in Christ. Now, that leads to the second point, and that is, well, how does that impact our relationships? I mean, how will, that, how will that increase my love for others or cause others to love me more? Point number two, stay with me, our eternal hope. 
So once Paul finishes, this was his last teaching point, and he had a lot. Right? We stacked in. I had to break it up into three sermons. He had so many great points in there. But he's finished teaching. And now he's going to say goodbye. Look at verse 36. And when he had said these things, all the pastoral teaching to the elders of Ephesus, he knelt down and he prayed with them. Now these are men for three years. He worked with, he prayed with, he trained up in the faith. And they, they were close. He taught them how to feed the sheep and to protect the sheep and to lead them properly. And so they gather and they're going to pray. They had spent years praying and now they're going to pray one last time as Paul leaves. And do you notice that they, they go on their knees? And we think of that, we think of going on their knees. Oftentimes you'll think praying your knees would be normal. It wasn't then, actually. You know, most of the time when they would pray, they would remain standing and they'd look up and keep their eyes towards heaven. And they'd pray to God like this. They would get on their knees when there, was, when there was grief in their heart. They would get on their knees when there was a sense of remorse or helplessness. We, we, we get this picture, I think, most clearly when our Lord and Savior was in the Garden of Gethsemane. And you, you know what he did. He, he told uh, Peter, James, and John to stay where they were, and he went a little further. I'll read it to you. He said, my soul is very sorrowful even to death. And going a little further, he fell on his face and he prayed. Jesus went down and he prayed, my father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And so this, this time of prayer is a prayer filled with grief and sorrow because Paul is leaving. Paul tells him, look at verse 37, that there was, Luke tells us that there was much weeping on their part now. These are grown men. These are hardy men. These, most of these men probably were, were men who worked with their hands. And it says that they were weeping. That's a poor translation. They were wailing. There, there's an audible sense to the teaching on this. They were sobbing, probably is better. So we're not talking about the Western man, watery-eyed tears, little sniffle, so sad, right? Because we, we try to keep all that in. Right, these men are weeping and they're wailing. So why are they so sad? Look at verse 38. Luke tells us they're sorrowful most of all because of the word he, Paul, had spoken that they would not see his face again. And so they were sorrowful, they were pained, they were distressed. Now, they were distressed in part because they weren't going to see this man they loved so much. But it wasn't just that. It wasn't because of Paul's busy schedule that he wasn't going to make it back to Ephesus to visit his friends. They knew that he wasn't going to come back because he was going to die. Or they believed he was going to die, that he was going to suffer persecution and death, uh, either in Jerusalem or in Rome or somewhere in between. And so there's deep sorrow over Paul's impending persecution and execution, either at the hands of the Jews or the Romans or both. And so in verse 37, it says they embraced him and they kissed him. They're wailing, they're crying, they're kissing him, they're embracing him. They're literally, that literally means they fell upon his neck. Now you hear that and you should probably think, hopefully, that's reminiscent of Joseph and his father. Remember Genesis chapter 46, after all that time, Joseph hadn't seen his father. We're told that Joseph prepared his chariot and he went up to meet Israel, his father, in Goshen. And he presented himself to him and he fell on his neck and he wept on his neck a good while. Right, so there's such love here. The elders for Paul and Paul for the elders, there's such love that these are grown men. These are, these are hardy men weeping and wailing and hanging on each other. I mean, it was quite a scene. And according to the text, it went on for some time. Extreme expressions of love. 
and no one cared what anybody else thought. Did you notice that? They weren't looking around going, oh, you know, he, he sees me crying. He sees me hugging Paul. They weren't, they weren't like us. True love never really cares what it looks like, right? I, I know that my boys over the years have suffered embarrassment at the hands of hugs and kisses in public. Uh, I have never really cared, right? Maybe I should have been more sensitive to them, but it didn't matter to me when I want to express my love for them, public or private, they're going to get hugs and kisses. In my opinion, and it's just my opinion, this is one of the more precious scenes in the New Testament of love of a brother for another brother. It is so filled with love and emotion. For three years, this bond of brotherly love, I mean, real love, had been cultivated. And so the departure here is really hard for them. Not only are going to miss Paul, but they can't stand the thought that Paul leaving meant potential persecution and potential execution. But what I want you to get from this, and then I'll close on this, is there's a reason why they responded the way they did. Paul lived with them in such a way that cultivated this response. It wasn't a show. This wasn't first century Mediterranean whaling where they hired professional mourners. This was real. This was authentic heart-to-heart expression. So if you're still struggling with the first point, that, it's, that it's more, you're more blessed to give than to receive, this is testimony that that is a true statement. This is how you can know. Was Paul not blessed here? Was he not blessed in the outpour and expression of love for him? Was he not, in this moment, deeply and sincerely loved by these men? They're weeping, they're kissing, they're hanging on him. I don't know, Paul said, all right, enough's enough. I mean, some of you really struggle with that, right? Some of you are the no-touchy people, no hugs, right? I don't think Paul was. If he did, he had great patience with them. Paul may have had a meager existence in terms of material possessions. He may not have had the silver and gold and garments of others, but I would argue that he was immeasurably blessed and that this scene testifies to this. His humble service, his giving instead of receiving, his caring and protecting instead of consuming, is revealed here in their expressed love for him. How much they truly loved him. I would argue that the blessings of Paul living a life of sacrifice and service and giving instead of receiving is on full display here. Not only for the Ephesian elders, but for us today. That we might say, why did they love Paul so much? Why did they love him like this? Well, we would argue that Paul, like his master Jesus, gave himself completely to these men, completely to the church, loving God and practically loving his neighbor. And in return, now these are saints of God. These are children redeemed by the blood of Christ. They are loving him deeply and sincerely. It's a very simple approach, my beloved. Paul understood that the more he gave, the more he served, and the more he sacrificed, the more he would get back love. Love. Listen to Jesus in Luke chapter 6. Again, this is such a simple teaching. I, I think intuitively we know it, but our flesh fights against it because we still want the things of this world. Jesus said in Luke chapter 6, he said, Give and it will be given to you. A good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use it, it will be measured back to you. What was a good measure? 
that was a standard by which you would actually engage in transactions in the marketplace. Right, so if you're going to buy flour, or corn, or cornmeal, they would take a measure of it. And this good measure, look at it, it would be, it would be pressed down, it would be shaken together, and it would run over into the lap, right? So it was a, a good, full measure. And Christ is saying very clearly, and Paul got that, give. Give joyfully, give abundantly, give graciously. And what God will do to you is that he will bring that giving back into your lap in ways that you can't possibly imagine. Sometimes it will be. You give financially, God will bless you financially in return. Most of the time, though, it's not that. It's you giving of time, money, and energies, and what you get back is love, love, and more love. You say, well, no, I'd rather have my possessions. Well, then you don't know anything, right? If you choose possessions or material things over the love of Christ and the love of the saints, then you know nothing because there is no greater blessing than having the love of God and the love of God's people. Paul did not run short. The full measure he gave, and it was slapped back into his lap here. Now, again, the prosperity gospel takes this and it twists it. The prosperity gospel says, give $100, and God will give you 1000 Give 10000 God will give you 100000 Right? It's this really evil pyramid scheme of the gospel. That's not what, what Paul's saying, and that's not what Jesus is teaching. Paul gave of his time, he gave his knowledge, he gave his body, he gave his money out of his love for Christ and his love for these people. And what did he get back in return? But more love. More love. Paul was, was hugged and kissed, and they didn't want to let him go. Right? They even followed him to the ship. They said, we're, we're going to ride. And they stood on the shore, and they watched him sail away because of that great love they had for him. My beloved, so... My grandparents lived in Washington. We saw them once or twice a year. They come down here once a year. And their grandparents. Grandparents love their grandkids, even if we're not very good grandkids. You love your grandkids, right? When they would go and get, my grandmother would take the train. Here, I'm going to get emotional. This is a million years ago. And we'd stand on the platform and wave goodbye. And I thought, I'm not going to see her for another year. But she, she was so giving and so generous with us that there was that desire for her not to leave, right? That's the type of relationships that truly bless the soul, you to someone else and someone else back to you. Paul got this. Paul got it, that he, if he loved Christ most and out of the love that Christ had for him, it would spill over, right? And that's really what it is. When you're loving and you're serving and you're giving, it's love of Christ spilling over in your life and it's spilling over into other laps and they're being blessed as you help them and you care for them. And then what Paul was doing here is he was truly storing up his treasures in heaven, was he not? I mean, think about it. These are saints who are going to be with him for eternity, and he was storing up the treasure of his love for them and his care for them, and they were going to be with him forever and ever. He was living out, Paul was living out what many of us say yes, amen to, and then we do not do. Oh, I want that to change today for us, my beloved. I don't want us to say yes, it's more blessed to give than to receive, but I'm not giving. <laughs> I'm just going to keep getting. I think that even in the Western church, if we're going to be really honest, our lives are still defined more by our things than people. If we're really honest, here, I know it's hard for us to see at times, we're more defined by our work or our degrees or, 
our homes or even our biological families. He's not talking, Paul's not talking to Uncle Joe here. These are the saints of God. These are the people of God, brothers and sisters in Christ. In our upside-down priorities, things still reign over God's children. Deep down, deep down, if we're willing to admit it, we still think, we still believe that things will make, our, might make us happier than either Christ or the love of the saints. Things will make us happier. Deep down, we still believe that the things of this world rather than relationships will, will buy true happiness. I think one of the reasons that we can justify the mass exodus from the state of California Relationships over years and years and years being vacated for property in a nice house is just that. You say, well, I, I, can, I can justify leaving this place even though all my relational capital is here. Family, friends, church members, I can justify it. Well, that's not what we see here, certainly not in the context of Paul's life. We still believe, even though we say it with our lips, we believe what Christ said, but we believe in our hearts, I think more, it's better to receive than to give. We like getting more. We like giving, but we like getting more, right? We believe it's better to keep our time, now listen, our time, oh, time, 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 our money, our energies to ourselves. We'll give some, we'll give a little, but ultimately, I'm gonna focus on me and maybe my family, and then I'll give, if there's anything left over, I'll give. Paul did the exact opposite. Christ did the exact opposite perfectly, eternally. He gave everything. But in all our efforts to keep these things to ourselves, to make ourselves happy, we miss true happiness. We miss true joy. In all the efforts to, 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 to receive and to have and to hold, we miss God and we miss God's people. Is it any wonder today the Western church is still so miserable? I mean, we really are. There's, I think, no time in human history that we could say that the Western, that God's people are, 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 are more better off than they are right now financially, and yet we, the church today is not a very happy place. So what do you need to do to change this? What do you need to do to live as Paul lived? What if your brothers and sisters knew that today would be the last day they saw you? This Lord's day, you're going to walk out that door, and they're never going to see you again. What if they knew that? And what if they knew that, that something bad was going to happen to you? Do you have the relational capital with people in this church where they would, they would grab you, and they would not let you leave that foyer, and they would hug you, and they would kiss you, and they would mourn, and they would weep, and they would wail, and they wouldn't care what anybody else thought because they loved you that much? That's a question you want to ask and answer. Do you have the relationships in the body of Christ like Paul had with the Ephesian elders? That if someone here, if you knew they weren't going to be here, you would want to express that love. Why? Because they had loved so much in return to you. So much love had been gone out, so much giving. They had been such a blessing in your life. So many prayers, so much counseling, so, much, so many words of encouragement that you can't fathom the thought of them not coming back. Or, my beloved, would your departure have no impact on the body of Christ? This is a horrible thought, but I want you to contemplate it for a minute. If you were to leave here, and they say, who, who are you talking about again? What, what's their name? I, uh, I don't know who that is. Well, that's, that's horrible. That's, that's not the gospel love that Paul's 
revealing here. If there's no love lost, then there was no love given in the first place, right? If there's no love loss of your departure, then there was no love given, there was no sacrifice, there was no generosity, there was no giving that may have been costly to reveal the love of Christ. How would you be missed if today were your last day here at Christ Community Church? Jesus said, John 13, 35, by this everyone will know that you are my disciples if what? You love one another. Do you love like that? Are you being loved like that? Would you have to have people, would you have to, you know, get out of here people hanging on to you? That's, again, that's, you shouldn't say, well, I'm going to start loving like that so people will love me like that. That's not the point, right? Love Christ like that, receive the love of Christ, and you'll want to serve, you'll want to give, you'll want to be sacrificial in your love toward others, and they will love you in return like that. Right, it's such a glorious picture. Christ's love overflowed in Paul's life, and therefore Paul's love overflowed for others. They witnessed it, they tasted it, they experienced it. So if you say, yeah, I, I want that blessing, well, draw near to the Lord. Have the love of Christ overflow in your life, and you will find yourself giving. It's not, oh, I need to give even though I don't want to. Now, that's flesh. Draw near to the Lord. Draw near to Christ. Cultivate that relationship through Scripture, through prayer, through community like this. And as you, as you experience the love of Christ more in your life, your, that love will go out and you will bless. You will give in ways you've never given before. You will spend time. You will spend that precious time. Because that's it today, is it not? I mean, that's the idol. I haven't got the time. Christian, don't utter those words. They're not your words. They're not the words of Christ. What if Christ came and said, you know, I really want to save you, but I haven't got the time to go to the cross? Of course you do. The question is, what's important? How will you spend your time? Oh, my beloved, I, I would argue infinitely better to spend it ministering and loving others. Infinitely better. Those treasures are stored up for forever and ever, and they are pleasing to our Lord. So you say, well, well how, how do I do that? Well, there are people in need in this church. So what kind of needs? Every need you can think of. We have financial needs. We have emotional needs. We have spiritual needs all the time, right? People that need to be comforted. People that need to be encouraged. People that need to be rebuked. People that need to be prayed for. Every single one of us has needs that the body is supposed to biblically meet. I would say that I would say in our cultural moment, one of the greatest needs that we have, one of the greatest needs this church has is friends. We need friends. We are a very lonely people. We don't even like to admit it because it sounds weak. We're lonely. The culture is lonely. The Western church is lonely. You say, well, what kind of friend do, do I want? What kind of friend do I want to be? Tim Keller, it's a great little phrase. It stuck with me for years. He said, friends are the kind of people that always let you in and never let you down. Isn't that great? They always let you in. doesn't matter what your house looks like doesn't matter how disheveled you are. They always let you in and they never let you down, right? Well, that's Christ, of course, right? He is the perfect friend. But don't we want to live as Christ lives for us? It means that you will engage in that second great commandment to love your neighbor as you want to be loved. So people and the people of God, more than the car, more than the house, more than the job, more than the degree, people first, and if you haven't experienced that, my beloved, then I'm going to challenge you right now. If you haven't experienced that type of love that we see here displayed with Paul and the Ephesian elders, 
just pick one person this week in this church. Uh, we're going to keep it real small. Pick one person, one person that you can reach out to and you can identify some of the needs in their life and then love them. Make it real simple. And anybody that you pick in this church, there'll be needs to meet. <laughs> so you're not going to end up short. <laughs> you know? And if someone says to you, oh, I have no needs, they're lying. Right? Spend some more time and figure out what their needs really are. Right? But everybody in this church has needs. Pick one person this week, commit them to prayer, get to know them a little bit better, and meet some of those needs. And then what you're going to find is, as you give out of your love for Christ, they're going to reciprocate. They're going to reciprocate with love. And you will love it. You will love it. You say, well, am I supposed to love it? Yes, of course you're supposed to, be lo- you're supposed to enjoy the love that God has for you through his children. You express it to the body of Christ. The body of Christ expresses it back to you. One person. So I'm going I'm to commit you into the hands of God by the power of the Holy Spirit, as Paul did the Ephesian elders here. Take one person, one brother, one sister, and strive intentionally to know them this week and to meet a need. And it can be really simple, really simple. Love them as Christ loves you, and you will be, believe it or not, eternally blessed. Amen? All right, let's pray. Father, take these words of our Lord and Savior and make them real to us. Cause us this very hour to see that in fact it is infinitely more blessed to give of our money, our time, our energy, and our resources to others than it is to receive them in return. Show us that, Father, that we might have a testimony of our lives like the Apostle Paul where as we, as we strive to store up our treasures in heaven by blessing children who will reside in heaven forever, your children, I pray, Lord, that you would show us that that is truly the most blessed life. That as we give, Lord, and as we see the cost involved of that giving, we won't draw back or try to hold on out of fear or out of greed, but we will give generously knowing that you will meet all of our needs and more. I pray, Father, for our church to be a giving church, that we would be like the Apostle Paul, but ultimately like Christ. And as we live and serve here in this place and love one another, we would see that love magnified. And how great, Father, to have the world see this, for people to come in here and see the love of Christ truly manifest in our lives as we meet the needs of one another. Father, cause us to be transparent, to not be prideful Westerners, Cause us to tell people what our needs are. Open our mouths, I pray, and then for those who will engage, Lord, cause us to meet those needs. First out of our love for you and then the love that overflows in our heart from Christ. I ask that you do this, Lord, for your glory and for our blessing. We want to be blessed like that. So bless us with the love of the saints. In Jesus' name, amen. Thanks for listening. Cambrian Park Baptist Church is a Reformed Baptist church in San Jose, California. If you'd like more information on our church, please visit cpbchurch.org. From there, you can find service times, weekly gatherings, our sermon archive, and other resources. For video content, please visit our YouTube channel. You can also follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Thank you again for listening.